0: I studied Heart of Darkness when I was still at high school, Mr. Mackenzie's English lit class at Brunswick Secondary College. It was in those classes I think I learned how to use the word sardonic properly in an essay. I remember Mr. Mackenzie drumming into us that criticisms of Conrad as soft on imperialism were missing the point that in something like a passing description of people's suffering, he was able to, in just four words, provide as tough a critique of the colonial project as you'd ever read. Bundles of acute angles. I remember the book's deep sense of outrage, the sense of unease, but I also remember the way Conrad wrote about life on ships and on water. I am very much not a boaty person, But his romantic vision of seafaring in that and many of his other novels was weirdly stirring and evocative. Beyond his account of the horrors, he was also drawn to this idea of adventure, like Robert Louis Stevenson or Patrick O'Brien, messing about on boats. What I didn't know until much, much later was that Conrad himself only commanded a single ship during his own nautical career. In 1889, in the port of Bangkok, He took charge of a sailing ship called the Otago and sailed it to Singapore and Sydney and to Melbourne. In one of those strange historical convergences, the wreckage of Joseph Conrad's beloved ship now lies on the banks of a river far closer to Brunswick Secondary College than it is to the former Belgian Congo. The Otago can be found on the side of the Derwent River in Hobart. And it's there that novelist Gail Jones took the inspiration for her latest novel. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. I'm a big fan of Australian novelist Gail Jones. She's written 10 novels now, won countless awards, been shortlisted for the Miles Franklin several times. Her 2018 novel, The Death of Noah Glass, won the Fiction Prize at the 2019 Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Her following novel, *Salonica Burning, took out the prestigious ARA Historical Fiction Award. And her new novel, One Another, does it again. She follows Helen, an Australian student who's headed to Cambridge to complete a thesis on Joseph Conrad. After leaving her manuscript on a train, Helen begins to be haunted, not only by her own lost words and by the details of Conrad's life, but also by the destructive behaviour of a lover. Helen's story and Joseph Conrad's stories intersect and overlap, illuminating ideas around grief and memory and narrative, and Gail can remember the exact day she began to write it. It
1: was the 24th of February... 2022. I had accepted a writer's residency in Tasmania at UTAS, arrived in Hobart. And I was pretty low. I'd said, I'm not sure I can write anything, um, but I'm interested in seeing Conrad's boat. So what I had heard was that the only boat that Conrad ever captained was there in the Derwent River. And within a few days of arriving, I went to visit Conrad's boat. And it was a beautiful object so it was the provocative wreck it was shaped like a cradle or like a body a body exposed to the sky with the derwent sort of trembling and rising and falling within the belly or the chest of this shape so it was a shape and I knew that this was called the Otago that it was registered in Adelaide after seeing this this shape, and that's all it was in some ways, I went back to the room that I was renting. And on the radio, I was told this was the day that Putin invaded Ukraine. And so I thought, I have to do something more than an essay or a story. I need to think about this. And one of the few things I knew about Conrad was that he was born in Ukraine, born in Berdichev So that was the inciting moment of this project. And then I thought, oh, there's too much. I haven't read enough Conrad and I'll have to reread everything. That was when I decided not to reread everything to make some selections and to think about
0: it's such the life that
1: comes to you in front of the Loving recreation of a life and, and, and of a body of work.
0: Of and you have a, a very nice line perusal. in your notes and acknowledgments where you say, I'm more aware these days of the community of the book. And part of the community of this particular book is countless Conrad readers and scholars that have come before you.
1: Hmm. Yes, and, I, and I'm very indebted to them, and I'm aware of that. At the same time, there were some wonderful surprises in rereading Conrad and also looking at the biographical material. All of his biographers say he had a Ukrainian accent, so not a French accent, not a Polish accent, not a Russian accent, but a Ukrainian accent that embarrassed and troubled him. And counterintuitively, the longer he stayed in England, the more pronounced his Ukrainian accent became, which I think is such a fascinating idea. So I had this sort of boat shape, and what does that mean? I had this linguistic idea of someone who is very marked by an accent, but actually wants an English accent and you know has a narrator who's an Englishman, a very fluent sometimes quite pompous Englishman, and then A Form, which was about reading and writing.
0: Do you remember when you first read
1: Conrad? I don't remember, uh, but I do remember first finding him very difficult. Some of his works are very ponderous and some are very hard to get into. Uh, And I had to teach, as one does, Heart of Darkness. And I, I was enormously impressed by the compression of that book, by its ideological vision, by how tight it was. And, you know, the the critics, and there are many of them now, went on about his, you know, affection for the imperial and the preposterous nature of his language. And yet, and yet, you know, there's something very powerful about that book. And like many young people, that was probably the first book that I read. But then I went to the stories And the story certainly left a lasting impression.
0: Why Helen and Helen's story then? Why is Helen the kind of reader that best offset and complemented that Conrad story for you?
1: Um, Well, I was um, on a residency in Tasmania, so I did want to think about a Tasmanian story. I was in a very particular part of Herbart, near this dark satanic mill, the constellation of details, very much in you know, of place, very much arose from thinking about what it would mean to come from this place to go to somewhere like Cambridge, and the students that I spoke to at the University of Tet, Tasmania. I was struck by how many of them had never been to the mainland. They had no no wish to go. The man that I hired the car from said he'd never been to Australia. He wasn't making a joke. This was not ironic. There's something about Tasmania that is sequestered, that does have a separate kind of history. And I I, I didn't in any way want to write about myself. But I wanted to write a story of someone coming from that space and that suburb, who ends up working on Conrad at a time When people still worked in libraries and when lovers didn't have mobile phones and when there was a sort of arduousness to traveling to the UK, but also to research. Uh, I I honor that. I really do.
0: As a writer who's drawn to uh, the historical, at this point, 1992 is a historical time frame in which to place this. And there's you know, there's a lovely moment when Helen gets news from back home of the Marbo decision, for example. You know, mm. the ways in which it grounds it in a particular moment politically, historically, culturally. What is it about the early nineties that made that feel
1: right? Um it was partly a kind of gratuitous or how should I say, felicitous choice. Um, I was in Cambridge in 1992, so I have certain memories of that. I do have memories of the Damien Hurst shark in the glass vitrine and being sort of appalled and fascinated by the fact that conceptual art had such purchase in John Major's Britain. But but the idea that, that values were uh, very skewed and very disconnected, I went first to the UK overland. I didn't want to fly and get off a plane and land in London. I was staying with a lovely couple and they had a garden party to welcome me. And somebody said, you're very smart for an Australian. And that attitude that that if one expressed an idea, there was something, you know, that the, the condescension to Australians struck me everywhere when I first went to the UK. The idea that I was Australian and wanted to talk about books and ideas was seen as, I don't know, it wasn't cricket.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amongst the things I adore in one another is that it seems intensely to be a book about haunting and about absences in, in a range of really interesting and vital ways. And that idea of the literary haunting is something that you're tapping into beautifully.
1: Thank you. I'm glad you've picked up on that because that is quite important to me. And I do think I do think of it as um, the process of writing. I do want to imagine the provocation of the trace or the wreck or the ruin, the relic, and the way that we are provoked to make something. More intensely present to us, and for me, reading does that. I'm a reader before, well before I'm a writer, and the that idea of the provocation to instantiate seems to me such a drive in me, and and it's a drive in memory. I think that's what memories exist for—to to, as it were, return us to the space of the the ghost or the figment or whatever. And to believe in its reality, to wish it to be so. I I mean, I think One Another is a book about reading and writing. And it's a book about, in part, I think, the phenomenology of reading and how much my protagonist, Helen, wants to connect or attach to another writer or to a writer, I should say, whom she is reading intensely. There is something otherworldly or uncanny about that process with so naturalised reading, and yet it is the oddest kind of drama in the head.
0: Helen has this kind of deep-seated ambivalence about her own responses to her reading. Helen is acutely aware of questions of legitimacy of her own written response to Conrad's life and to Conrad's work. And part of that comes from, I think, the strictures of the academy and the expectation of what a sufficiently rigorous response might be. And part of that is to do with some more kind of internal psychological characteristics of Helen's as well. Do you feel when you're writing your way into a reading experience, whether it's Conrad, whether it's miles franklin in uh, in salonica burning writing into another writer's space do you feel the pressures of legitimacy
1: yes i do and I, I felt them much more as a student the process and it's a psychological one as much as it's an imaginative one of projection introjection, fantasizing a connection you know, forms of attachment that we have to writers, all of those things exist when we read. And yet this study of literature, and I've taught literature for a long time, so I'm fascinated by the process of studying literature and how it composes another self for you. I mean, I do feel I'm someone composed by reading rather than writing. And I've never really been interested in those novels that invest authority in the author or the narrator, kind of a complete authority. I'm much more interested in, I guess, what you'd call a disseminated reading, with with many spaces, that are negotiable spaces, even if there aren't many characters. So that's why I'm so interested in form and in breaking up the seamless. You know, the idea of the seamless, well-made novel that works by accumulation. I'm much more interested in the spaces, the gaps, the idea that there are, there are always multiple viewpoints.
0: When we return, Gail shares how the act of reading saved her. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, I'm Alison Crogan, Arts Editor for The Saturday Paper. Schwartz Media has launched a new weekly arts and culture newsletter, The Arts. Featuring cultural criticism, profiles and provocations from the writers behind The Monthly and The Saturday Paper, the arts will be delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Sign up now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
0: With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Were you a good student?
1: No. No, I was a hopeless student. I was a terrible undergraduate. I was so shy. I never spoke in class. In the, I think, eight years it took to do my BA, So, uh, and then I dropped out of two doctorates before I completed one, and then only through material necessity did I complete a doctorate. I felt very ambivalent about university study, and my background is working class and country girl, and I just didn't fit at some point i fell in love with intellectual life and with reading and writing and that made it possible to keep going but i never imagined i mean i that i would write anything or that i would become a teacher in a university i didn't really imagine that i my my parents loving as they were had quite low expectations in as much as they tried to persuade me to leave school at 14 to become a florist so they thought I was a bit arty and that a florist was a kind of, you know, arty sort of job for a nice young girl. Uh, and so I stayed at school really um, as a dissenter.
0: Did reading offer you either respite from your own melancholy biography or a, a different way to conceive of how you might interact with others?
1: Absolutely. That's what reading taught me. Reading saved me. I think reading saves a lot of working class kids. Reading taught me that there are modes of distance, extrapolation, how should I say, depersonalized expression uh, that that can contain the world and the world and everything in it. Um, That that was very consoling to me to think there was this space of extrapolation and that that's in fact one of the functions of reading and indeed writing, to put things outside the self, to make them an artifact, to give them an autonomous and separate meaning. I mean, I was very conscious in this book of wanting to write about reading, not in the sort of cliched idea of escape, but an alternative world of being and experience. We experience when we read, when we burst into tears over a character who is no more than black marks on a white page. That's a kind of experience and a kind of affective, has its own affective integrity. And I, I guess I wanted to represent that. At the same time, I'm not saying that art displaces life or that it's a better life. Just recently, I guess because of the Palestine-Israel situation, I had a look at a, a speech, again, that I haven't looked at for years, by Susan Sontag, and it's called The Conscience of the Word. and She says that one of the functions of literature is to remind us of the sort of irreducible multiplicity of ourselves, both in public and in private, and that that irreducible multiplicity has within it contradictions and things that will never be settled. And then she goes on with what might sound like a pat formulation and says that literature offers us the also and the something else, that's her two words, that literature, like other people, exceed our sense of their boundaries. And and that too is quite consoling, That that we can't know everything and that in our own lives, The people that we're closest to often, they have their margins of unknowability. And that helps me to write, actually thinking in that way of what is not known.
0: It helps you to write. Does it equally motivate you to write? I mean, is writing an act of striving for knowledge? What's that Auden line about the, how will I know what I think until I see what I've written? Does that resonate with you?
1: Yes, and there is no... Um, accident that there's an Auden quote in in this novel. I have what they call the quotas itch. I have to restrain myself from filling up my text with quotes and illusions because that's just how my mind works. And it's how I teach, I suppose, by saying, ah, Auden would say. Uh, And you can't always get away with that in a novel. And certainly I wouldn't want to overload a text that's already quite congested. The constraint in this book was to keep it short. There's so much on Conrad Michael, it's just extraordinary and very intimidating. So in this case, I decided it would be a novel of 50,000 words. It would have two narratives, one of a writer and one of a reader. They would be imbricated and sort of mutually consolidating in terms of ideas, but that I would not write about every single Conrad novel. You know, I really felt I needed a constraint.
0: One of the things I love about reading this book is the number of times I had to stop and go back a page because you'd taken me utterly by surprise, or there's an immediacy to parts of Helen's story that, to use contemporary parlance, toxic relationship with a charming but volatile young man... And the way violence disrupts the story seems really important, but it also seems very resonant of Conrad to me. Was that a deliberate thing? Was it clear that there had to be peril?
1: That wasn't something I realised until afterwards. I, I am quite interested in violence and and see it everywhere. Violence against women. What I wanted to do was not have some spectacular violent moment. What I wanted was it to be in that civilized space of Cambridge, perpetrated by someone who many others found charming and intelligent and successful. And that too, I have witnessed. And I think that one of the links that's made in the text, and it is meant to be radically discontinuous, and it is meant, I do want an active reader who has to string together the connections. One of the links I made was with the moment in The Secret Agent, when the wife realises that her husband um, is responsible for the death of her brother. I mean, many people have read The Secret Agent, so I hope that's not a spoiler. I
0: think the statute of limitations on spoilers, you're okay for that okay, one. Okay,
1: thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, but that's such a clever moment. And critics who talk about Conrad as this old-fashioned, pompous 19th century writer, the virtuosity of how he looks at a marriage... At how the point of view swings almost with its own violence between the husband and the wife and you know something terrible is going to happen and then its aftermath. That was important to me, that that sort of resonated in a sense through the relationship in 1992.
0: I think you capture exactly that feeling so beautifully because there are ways in which Helen's relationship with her own sense of self, her family, her father, her her past, how it relates to her feeling of belonging or not in Cambridge, and then how it relates to romantic and sexual attraction undercut by doubt or fear. The, all those things layer beautifully to mean that as you read it, you're very much with her when there is shock, when there is grief, when there is distance. It's incredibly skillfully handled. I kept turning back the page to see how you'd done it. I was like, how did Gail seed that so elegantly?
1: That, that's kind. I mean, I think that desire is is errant. You don't always desire the person who's best for you. Desire has its own plot mechanisms, I think, and its own outcomes. And I, I wanted to use that in this text, that someone from a repressed working class background might... Fall victim to the errancy of desire, and I guess to affirm female desire as well desire for knowledge, desire for sexual experience, desire for new places. I mean, what most affected me, I think, about the Conrad story, notwithstanding his immense influence, was his childhood. You know, the single child of two. Radical nationalists who took their only child with them into exile, much against the wishes of his family. The grandmother in Warsaw wanted to keep him safe in Warsaw, but these young radical parents took him to Vologda in the middle of nowhere, in a north, far northwest of Siberia. And so, um, you know as i think this is in the first two pages of the book his mother dies when he's seven his father dies when he's 11 and i think that he suffered a lifelong melancholia and i wanted to not read that as a neurotic you know this is what made him a writer being so sad i wanted to read it as that again provocation to instantiate that that wish to bring something back that was represented in part by the loss of his parents as a child.
0: So then if I can ask you the question you pose at the very start of the book as well, how much does a writer carry forth their parents?
1: <laughs> well, um, a great deal, I think. I have now lost both my parents and they are the ghosts. I mean, and I'm sure this is the case for everyone who has lost people they love, that there are There's a sense of inconclusiveness about the ghost as a figure, as a literary trope, but also as an experience, you know, that that something is not concluded and that we spend the rest of our lives dealing with that inconclusiveness.
0: How present are your parents in your writing?
1: That's an impossible question, I think. You know, as I said, my parents didn't have much formal education. Uh, They were very clever, especially my mother, and so the, the sort of things that I was interested in were incomprehensible to them, especially when I decided against the odds to go to university, there was a kind of bewildered incomprehension that was never really resolved, I think. And it wasn't from lack of love and it wasn't from lack of intelligence. It was a, um, another world. If you haven't had the access to what books and writing might mean to you, it's hard to explain it.
0: Your description of arriving in Hobart for the residency, it sounded like you are at a a low ebb. Do you have the compulsion to write whatever is going on, wherever you're at? Uh,
1: I do have some kind of compulsion, yes. And it's not abating, (laughs) I thought. When I left university, um, I could do lots of other things. I don't know. I'm still reading huge amounts, but I, I I still have a compulsion to write. And I, f- I feel very ungrounded when I'm not writing. It, writing is a way of sort of gathering a self, uh, you know, the self that's in deep time, the self that is still, that is introspective. And that seems to be important to me.
0: Gail Jones's latest novel, One Another, is available at all good bookstores now. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au newsletters. And before we get out of here, I wanted to let you know what I've been reading this week. A few years ago, Queensland writer and former winner of the David Yoniapon Award, Michaela Saunders, brought out this anthology of First Nation speculative fiction called This All Come Back Now. It was an electrifying collection of genre craziness from a range of First Nation voices. And Saunders has just brought out her own collection called Always Will Be. It's true to form, an imagined future that asks questions of identity, self-determination and the fight. It's terrific. And novelist Jonathan Rosen has written a non-fiction account of his childhood best friend. It's a book that traverses topics like mental illness, violent crime, loss, a failing health system, and so much more. It is the best memoir I've read in years. It's called The Best Minds, and I can't recommend it enough. Next week on Read This, I chat with writer Nam Lee about his latest collection of poetry and how the form inspired him to begin writing in the first place. It's how I started being enthralled by words and by language, I guess. And I still remember being struck by certain rhythms of poems when I was young. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.